Welcome to Convos from the Couch by Life Stance Health, where leading mental health professionals help guide you on your journey to a healthier, more fulfilling life. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Convos from the Couch by Life Stance Health. I'm Nicolette Lianza, and on this episode, I'll be talking with Paul Brassler a clinician from one of our Life Stance Virginia offices, and he'll be helping us to understand more about substance use disorders. So welcome, Paul. Great to have you on. Thank you, Nicolette. Thank you for having me. You wrote a book called The Clinician's Guide to Substance Use Disorders, Practical Tools for Assessment, Treatment, and Recovery. And your book covers so many aspects of substance use disorders, like the science behind it, treatment and strategies for it, even the language we use surrounding substance use disorders. And and such an important point too of, you know, emphasizing the individual as opposed to disorder. So I really look forward to sharing your insights on those who may be struggling with substance use disorders. Okay, sounds great. So let's jump in and have you tell us a little bit about yourself. Well, I'm a licensed clinical social worker and I work uh, at it. I live and work in Central Virginia in the greater Richmond uh, metropolitan area. Uh, I've been with Life Stance now for six months. Uh, this is one of two practices I'm with. I have a, another practice where, I, uh, where we practice ketamine infusion therapy, uh, which is kind of a whole other subject on itself. But uh, for Life Stance, I work with individuals 15 and older. Uh, and my background, though, has been in substance use disorder treatment and uh, treating people, uh, what are collectively called high-risk clients, in other words, um, psychiatric emergencies. Uh, and, and so uh, come to Life Stance with a lot of experience in community mental health, um, uh, teaching as well. I, I also work, uh, I'm a national speaker for PESI. Um, so appreciate being a part of the Life Stance group because um, Frankly, the flexibility is, is huge and um, the independence. I like, I like being able to do what I like to do and um, frankly, being left alone to do it and given the tools I need to do it. And um, it's been really cool. Yeah. I so, uh, but uh, yeah, I've been a social worker for close to 30 years. Um, I have a family here. I have three sons. My wife is a trauma nurse. And uh, so we, uh, we have a lot of fun. Sounds like you and your wife both do very important work. I, we we like to think so. We we joke that if we talk about our work like at a party, we could we could kill the conversation in about thirty seconds. Um, just, <laughs> <Okay>. So we don't. <laughs> <laughs> so tell us about what inspired you to write this book. Well, um, so I went to grad school at Virginia Commonwealth University, go Rams, uh, in uh, the nineteen nineties, and at the time i had worked with exclusively worked with uh kids uh that were coming from significant economic um stress a lot of kids who've been abused i was working in residential treatment at the time and uh the school asked me you know where do you want to do your first intern where where do you not want to do your first internship and being really naive and i talk about this in the book uh but you know i said i don't want to work with addicts and I, i wrote it in big letters and I think I even wrote because they can help it. And, and my, my prejudice toward people with substance use disorder was grounded in the fact that uh, nearly all the kids I worked with in residential um, had been there or, or were there because of uh, neglect, uh, abandonment, 
by parents with substance use disorders. So I had a very negative view of that. Yeah. And so the school in their wisdom put me in a residential program for, for women who were IV drug users. So I was like, okay, clearly I got caught, you know, and I, I got, you know, they got, I got tricked, but I, I went there and that's, that was the summer of 1997. That was a profound um, career changing and maybe even life changing event because yeah. uh, as I got to know the clients there, I realized there was really no difference other than age than the kids I would work with at night at, in my residential program than the folks I work with during the day. And I became fascinated with how molecules, uh, various substances could change how people think and act, how it could over, how drugs could override uh, a maternal instinct or paternal instinct or even survival instinct. And I became fascinated with it. And so as I graduated uh, and as I continued my career, I gravitated towards substance use disorder, but in my field of social work, there was not a lot of, at least in my corner of the world, there was not a lot of, of information, a lot of educational opportunities for it. So I, became, I, became edu I began educating myself. Um, at the time, and, and still in many places now, services are siloed. Uh, mm -hmm. At least in public services here in Virginia, for example, if you go to a, uh, a public um, state-funded mental health clinic, you will often be funneled into a mental health group or a substance use disorder right, group. Right, right. Even though, as, as I say in the book, about 80% of people with a substance use disorder have some level of a mental health disorder and vice versa. It's the outliers that are pure right. serious mental health illness or pure substance use disorder. But our systems of care and our education systems are slow to catch up. Yeah. So when I went back to I went back to my alma mater in the in the in the 2010s and said I want to teach a class on substance use disorder and they said great develop it I said I thought you'd never ask so I did and and that kind of became some of the foundations of this book but my main reason for writing it was I really want to close the gap in the knowledge base for many clinicians and not just clinicians this book is appropriate for first responders uh, for clergy for teachers. Um, even for, you know, folks that are not, not in the field, it's, it says clinician's guide because that's what the publisher wanted to say. It's that's more than it. that. But the idea behind it uh, was to close that knowledge, to close that knowledge gap, to demystify substance use disorder and to really humanize people who live with substance use disorder. I love that. It's a humanization of it. I, I too, as I was uh, navigating graduate school, was locked into the thought of like, you have those who have mental health in this category, and then you have those who are struggling with substances. And and yes, they can cross, but really you're taught like this category yeah. and this category. So I'm really glad we are eventually, and we are slow to catch up to, right. often in the field, but to evolve beyond that, for sure. Right. How would you define addiction? I use a couple of different definitions, but the, the best definition I got is from a book. Uh, the author's name is Morgan. Uh, but uh, she, the title of her book is Addiction, Attachment, Trauma, and Recovery. And, and I love her definition, and I'm just going to read the quote. Yeah. So she says, addiction is a multi-determined phenomenon with layers within layers of mutual influences, internal and external, all interacting concurrently, leading to a pathological outcome. She goes on to say it's, 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 no more, it's no more true to say that addiction is simply a brain disease 
a flawed personal choice or an experience of learning than it is to say that falling in love is nothing but biochemistry. Mm. And we've come a long way in the field in terms of conceptualizing uh, substance use disorder, or which is another name for addiction, uh, substance use disorder as a medical illness that has characteristics that are very similar to asthma, hypertension, diabetes. But the movement within the field now is to move even away from a medical model toward a recovery model. And by recovery, what we mean is, read the definition of that, um, is that is that it's a lived experience, improved life quality, a sense of empowerment, it's a process. Mm -hmm. And so while we've utilized the medical model to legitimize and support treatment and hopefully lead to destigmatization of SUD, we really have to look toward the recovery model uh, to realize that that is about individualizing practice. And if, if, if I'm sure many folks are familiar with the um, uh, America, uh, the uh, association for with ASAM, so uh, mm -hmm. the American Society of Addiction it. Medicine, yep. you know, they talk about treatment has to be individualized, just like any other type of treatment. And I think medicalization has helped that. But recovery is not just looking at the, the, the addiction itself. It's looking at the, the whole person, which is, you know, really in line with everything else we do uh, as clinicians. So why is language surrounding addiction important? Well, language is power. Um, and and I, I used to tell my, tell my students or even people I train now, I said, I, I don't, I don't, I'm not politically correct to be politically correct, I, but I'm not going to go out of my way to offend people because that's really, you know, language should be used to draw people in. Mm -hmm. And uh, addiction, and particularly like words like substance abuse, abuse is a very negative connotation. We think of child right. abuse. That's bad. Right. Right. Um, you know, and, and even uh, with addiction, I will talk about it. I will talk about addiction in the global scheme, like addiction treatment. But if I'm talking with a patient or about a patient, I'm going to talk about alcohol use disorder, benzodiazepine use disorder, opioid use disorder. Because I really want to make it about the, the individual that mm -hmm. just as we would not say, oh, Susie is bipolar, we would say, you know, Susie lives with bipolar disorder yeah. or has bipolar disorder. We want to keep the person yep. first. There's still stigma is one of the reasons, one of the, the primary reasons why people do not seek treatment. One study showed, for example, um, it was actually a meta-analysis showed that uh, family members, families with a member with substance use disorder uh, felt more isolated in their communities than families that had a member with schizophrenia. Because there is still this notion of it's all the person's fault. Mm -hmm. Now, there are elements of choice in this. And I do, I also believe that people are not automatons. And so what, what we mean by that is that there are elements of choice of does a person want to try to engage in treatment? Or do they want to engage in, you know, uh, harm reduction strategies? There are elements of choice with that. But as I tell people at the beginning of whenever I have a presentation, whenever I talk about substance use, I've never met a person in, in a, you know, close to 30 years of, of doing this kind of work in various settings. I've never met a person who look, can look me in the eye and say, this is what I wanted to have happen to me. I wanted to be an adult living in precarious situations, sticking a needle in my arm every, you know, every six to eight hours. Nobody wants this. 
or I, I wanted to be able to drink myself to oblivion or, or whatever substance we're talking about. Nobody wants that. Some people have, have, have been told that is what they are destined to become. And they believe that. Mm-hmm. But the, the example I give it is I, my, my youngest son, uh, Eli, is, is going to be 11 this summer. And Eli loves basketball. And um, he's been playing on a fairly competitive team this year. And um, he, he, he's a great assist. Um, hasn't made a shot all year. Uh, you know, but he hustles and he's like, you know, I want to be professional. I want to play basketball in college. Um, love my son. I'm going to encourage him. The chances of him playing for, you know, a division one university, probably not going to happen, but he doesn't look, but at the same time, you know, we're going to encourage him in those dreams. He doesn't look at me and say, Hey dad, when I grow up, I want to, I want to, I want to be an alcoholic. Right. Right. You know? and, And so even though he has, probably a one in 10, maybe even one in eight chance um, of becoming, of, of developing a substance use disorder. So it really, the language, the last thing I'll say, but it really is about moving toward a we mm-hmm. mentality as opposed to an us and them, they, those. We have enough of that in our society now. Yes. Uh, we, this is where we heal these divisions. And what's interesting is that when you really talk with people about substance use disorder, the that people everybody is affected by substance use disorder in some way either directly or you know somewhat indirect everybody knows somebody or somebody's right who struggle with this um this is an area where we we can agree on and this is an area where in in a lot of the political um systems within our country we're actually seeing a lot of bipartisan support because we're realizing this is a phenomenon that does not care who you voted for doesn't care about the color of your skin. You know, it doesn't care. It's an equal opportunity killer. You made a point in your book, language drives stigma. Mm -hmm. And I really, that was very powerful for me to take a look at because that's so true. So it's so key that you're emphasizing language as we're talking about this again, my graduate training was very much like the addict and like just, you know, are yeah. they clean? Are they dirty? And like just mm-hmm. the language is so stigmatizing. So I really love the fact that yeah. you emphasize the language and how important it is in the book. Well, and, and with that is that one of the biggest things we also see, and, and I talk about this in the book as well, is self-stigmatization of the mm. person with substance use disorder. It, you know, a, addiction becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. Uh, if you look at how intrinsically linked it is with trauma, you know, you really, I mean, it, you really can, cannot separate the, the two out. There is, uh, for, for the majority of people with substance disorder, there is some trauma history there, you know, of different types, different levels, right. but right. it's there. And so, and, and, and part of what I saw, in what, particularly when I work with folks who use heroin, I spent a lot of time with folks who, who, who inject opioids, heroin and fentanyl. One of the things that we saw as they entered recovery, particularly with medication-assisted treatment or medication for opioid use disorder, um, they would be like, uh, I'm dealing with my feelings now. What the heck? Right. So they wouldn't say heck. They'd be like, you know, what is going on? I haven't dealt with these feelings in seven years. And so as a team and as a group and as peers, we're having to say, okay. We're, because, again, those feelings are going to drive a return to use. Mm-hmm. Uh, because I want to go back toward that sense of oblivion. Right. 
And right. so, you know, we, we have to, to recognize it, particularly as, as we delve and, and really recognize the full landscape of trauma. And let's be honest, most people coming to us for therapy, um, it really is about a lived experience of trauma more than anything else. Yeah. And, and again, I don't think every bad thing that is a trauma, I'm not saying that, but there are, think of how many clients that you all uh, out there might have right. that oh, I have bipolar disorder, but they've never had a manic episode. In, in the absence of substances, they've never had all these other things. And it's like, it's about trauma. So yeah. we also have to look at how bad diagnoses yeah. have, have, have helped people to miss opportunities to treat their substance use disorder and their trauma. How can working with people struggling with substance use disorders be difficult? I think the biggest thing that can be difficult about it is a lack of resources. Um, so like, for example, you, ASAM has a number of criteria for different levels of care, uh, you know, from outpatient, you know, it, typical outpatient care all the way into, you know, intensive hospital-based treatment. A, a, lot of the, a lot of the issues with substance use disorder is that there are limited resources uh, in a, a community. So mm -hmm. if, if I'm, you know, if I'm working for LifeStance and I have somebody uh, come in, I, and I do treat people with substance use disorder here at LifeStance, um, have people coming in, they may need a higher level of care, you know, with the idea that, okay, once that higher level of care, there's been some stability there, we could come back down to this level of care. But at least in my community, there's not a lot of places uh, to go. There's also this notion in the broader community, and I just mean in, in society in general, that, oh, you've got to go to rehab, as if somehow right. going to a 28-day inpatient program that most of us could not afford, most insurance will not pay, is somehow going to rectify that. And, and again, there are some very expensive programs out there, but if you look at their success rate, it is in the single digits. Because what has to happen afterward? Follow-up care. Right. What about housing? I mean, can a person maintain recovery if everybody else in the home or even one other person in the home is using substances themselves? What if, you know, and so we have to kind of look at, at these, these systems, uh, the broader systems of care and also recognize that sometimes people are not ready to stop, even when we really want them to stop. And I'm working with a couple of people right now where it's like, you know, they're they're asking, "Do am I an alcoholic?" That's their words, and I'll and I don't know, you know. It, um, and and so we're you know, so there's a lot of ambivalence a lot of time uh, with folks with substance use disorder. That can make it difficult uh, for clinicians. But the biggest thing I see is just is a lack of resources. The mm -hmm. thing I like to point out is that in my when I go to other cities um, to present, you know, whether it's talking about high risk clients or talking about substance use disorder, I've never gone to a community and been like, hey, uh, all you clinicians out there, you got all the services you need in your community. I've never had a community be like, oh, we've got plenty of geriatric psychiatric facilities. For, for juveniles, plenty of, nobody says that. No, no. Nobody says that. And in some states, and Virginia, unfortunately, is one of them. We're in the bottom half. Um, okay. And, and it's, it's really, it shows. It's, it's a lack of treatment uh, options and a lack of uh, flexibility within that. How can we fight the stigma surrounding addiction? I think we tell the stories as best we can. Uh, I think part of it is um, helping clients to understand that um, this isn't something this, you know, again, you share what you choose to share, you know, that, 
anonymity is is an important aspect of treatment. It is it's an important aspect of being able to control your story. Um, but um, anonymous doesn't mean invisible. Mm -hmm. And so mm -hmm. what we are beginning to see around the country is a greater voice coming from the recovery community, even some politicization of that and saying, you know, we vote too. Mm -hmm. um, and, and so I think that, uh, that, that that's what we have, we have to be able to do is, is to really understand that there is a political capital here. I have a, a client uh, that I work with here, uh, here at LifeStance who, she lost her uh, son at the age of 18. She found her son and his girlfriend, uh, they were 19, sorry, um, dead of a fentanyl overdose in her house. And uh, obviously, uh, tremendous amounts right. of grief, Jim, that's why she sees me. Mm -hmm. um, but what she has done is she has said, I, I'm going to lend my voice. And she has, uh, she has testified in front of our state assembly. Wow. Um, she has, um, she, she, she has reached out to other parents who this has happened to. Um, and she and this group actually, uh, have worked to, uh, change some laws that are, that are going before our governor here in Virginia. Uh, to to really kind of boost um, to, to really kind of in response to this bipartisan, you know, basically wow, saying to folks, wow. we don't care if, if you're red or blue. This is this is about life or death. And uh, so lending her voice to that, uh, I think that that's an important piece. And also calmly and nicely, and I got to emphasize that correcting people when you hear them make untrue statements about substance use disorder. I, I worked a long time, for example, in a clinic that served um, folks who were homeless mm -hmm. uh, or, you know, uh, substandardly housed. And I was part of a workout group at the time and we were running past a, an encampment. And one of the guys, it's very wealthy guys in our group is like, you know, why don't they just go in a shelter? And I kind of jogged alongside him. I said, I hear what you're saying. Can I, can I just, um, let you know this is what it's like inside a shelter and and he we talked and and and, and he's like so why are they at her? i said a lot of people out here struggle with substance use disorder that guy who is a who is a you know multimillionaire mm -hmm. that guy became a huge advocate for wow. prevention harm reduction and he began telling other people like in the banking industry hey we got to leverage some of this. He was already involved in several boards. He got other people involved. It was a, it was a calm, kind conversation. It wasn't like, "Hey, you jerk," right? You right, know, right. or you know, or or it, it was it was. Hey, by the way, and it, it is interesting. He told me about a year later. He had a friend who lost a child to substance okay. use disorder, and he was he felt that he was perhaps better equipped from a compassion standpoint to be there for his friend. And I was like, so calm, kind conversations, you know, not slamming people right, and, right, and, and doing it face to face, not through, you know, Twitter, social media, right, right. How's addiction the biggest issue facing society right now? Well, if you look at the, the sheer statistics of it, uh, and, and the last year we have complete data is 2021, okay. uh, 2022 data should be released into this month or um, 
in April. Uh, 100, over 107,000 people died of substance, of, of overdoses. You said 107,000. 107,000. So wow. we're talking more than twice the number of people who were killed in all 10, year, all 10 years of the Vietnam War. Um, and we're talking about something that, you know, is more than the number of people killed that die by suicide or homicide. Um, and what we're seeing is a 15, 1, 5% increase from 2019 to 2020 to 2021. Wow. Now it's interesting in 2019 and 2020, we saw a decrease in the overall suicide rate. Huh. Okay. We, did. we saw, we saw a slight decrease after 20 years. But what we have seen is this increase, and these are deemed non-intentional overdoses. And again, it's there probably are there probably are some in there that were intentional, just like there are are suicide, people who die by suicide that are not counted in that number. Okay, mm-hmm. but um, but the fact is is that 15 percent each year, 2022 is projected to be about the same. Over 70,000 of those uh, deaths are due to fentanyl, illicit fentanyl. Okay. So when people talk about banning fentanyl, you have to understand fentanyl as used in a medical setting is a life-saving drug. If you are in a car accident today um, and you are probably going to be given fentanyl because it is very good at reducing pain, it's quick, it's relatively safe. If anybody out there has ever had an, uh, an outpatient procedure, you had fentanyl. Okay. And, you know, that's so it's, and it's very, very, very safe in that regard. But... Um, what we're seeing now is illicit fentanyl that's coming in from overseas. It's coming in all over, not, not just through the borders, but through the mail. Uh, and it was initially used to cut uh, the heroin uh, so that you would have a stronger product. So if you're, a, if you're a heroin dealer, you want to be able to retain your customers. You want to sell good stuff. Okay. What we've seen now in most of our cities is that fentanyl has replaced heroin. Uh, not just in cities, but in rural areas as well. We're also seeing issues like in the greater Philadelphia area with uh, a drug that on the street is called Trank. It's xylazine, which is actually a veterinary medicine. And that's typically added to fentanyl to extend its effects. We're mm-hmm. seeing nitazines, which are other uh, chemicals. These are fentanyl-like, but they're not fentanyls um, that are even more powerful than, than, than the various types of fentanyl. And fentanyl itself uh, is 80 times more potent than morphine. Um, and even car fentanyl is a hundred times more potent than that. So there are literally thousands of different fentanyls and fentanyl analogs. And so people do not know what they're taking and it's, Mm -hmm. it's winding up in everything. And the reason it winds up in everything is that typically when drugs move from a production to street level, it's not this nice, neat little chain. It's the drugs are probably touched between 20 and 30 times. And every time they're touched, they may be repackaged. Um, there's a lot of cross contamination, and so we're seeing uh, we're seeing the fentanyl in you know uh, cannabis gummies. Um, you can buy a pill press on Amazon for less than twenty five. So you're seeing it in MDMA or ecstasy, right. street level alprazolam, cocaine, Oof. methamphetamine, all kinds of stuff. And that's what's leading to it. That's why this is a huge, huge issue, a major public health crisis. And there's no way to tell. There's no way to tell. You can get, well, you can, I mean, a lot of harm reduction, I mean, like you can get fentanyl test strips, but they're only going to test if they're, it may not, it may not detect other things that are in it. Okay. And so when people say, well, gee, why are they, why do you keep using? Well, again, the withdrawal profile, particularly from opioids is extremely, you feel horrible. I mean, imagine Mm -hmm. the worst case of food poisoning, 
mm. and combine that with a full body flu, multiply it by a factor of three and have it last seven to 10 days. And so <laughs> I tell people, I tell people, I say, no, listen, when I'm, when I'm a little nauseous, I'm reaching for the Zofran, you know what I'm saying? Or I'm trying to make a deal with God, please let me throw up. You know, I said, imagine, and, and that's just a little bit of discomfort. You're going to want to do, you want to, you want to do everything you can. And it's that desire to go back and continue using that drives it. They're not getting high anymore. They're just using not to keep, not, not to get sick. So that's, such a, I think that's a really interesting point there that people maybe don't understand that they're not using to get high anymore. They're just no. trying to avoid that. It just sounds like terrible, awful yep. sickness that goes with it. With yeah, we, call it we call it dope sickness. Um, mm -hmm. Beth Macy, who's from Virginia, has a book called Dope Sick, which is really good. I recommend it. There's also a um, TV series based on it on Hulu with Michael Keaton. And, and really, I mean, that we, we call it dope sickness. And that's really what it is. And it um, it, it drives a lot of that. And it's, and it's even... Some some of the some of the misinformation about substance use treatment that's still within the community is like, well, if I just get the substance out of my body, if I just go through detox, then um, then you know I'll, I'll be fine. That's a very small part of it. In fact, detoxification alone or withdrawal management alone is not really treatment. It's just it can be a beginning part of it. Mm -hmm. Um, but, uh, treatment can begin while the person is still using or even using at a reduced amount. But the idea being that if we just get the drug out of the body, then they're going to be okay. No, there are residual effects that, that take months or years, um, years to address. And, um, that's the post-acute withdrawal that we have to deal with. And it's, so it's not even just about getting through the physical symptoms, it's the emotional symptoms, it's mm -hmm. learning to live with, or, you know, having to now examine trauma and things like that. Ooh. Having to examine that trauma without the typical thing you would go to numb your right. emotions surrounding trauma. Exactly, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. absolutely. How can working in this field be rewarding? <laughs> you meet the most interesting people. Um, no, in all seriousness, you, you that's true. Um, it's rewarding because you realize that people, a lot of people that, that have substance use disorder, I mean, I would just, I describe them as survivors. Mm -hmm. um, and you, you realize they're, we're, we're not, I, I mean, I'm only, you know, I'm, I'm one or two opportunities or choices or situations away. You know, it's not about them and us it's about we mm -hmm. um and so i think it's the opportunity to walk through somebody walk walk with somebody as they go through transformational change um and to realize it really is a whole person change it's not just a changing of behaviors um mm -hmm. it's, it's changing how one thinks it's uh, there's a spiritual component that is also a very important um and and that i think is is exceptionally just, just a part of it. I, I, let me give you an example. I, I was yeah, doing, I, I was doing group one time in a, in a program here in, here in central Virginia called Caritas. And, and I was running a group as part of another job I had where I had to, I worked with folks with co-occurring disorders and I, and I, and I walk in the room and there's a, a guy sitting there and he's a few years older than probably about 10 years older than me. I introduced myself and he goes, you the, are you the, uh, you the, uh, the teacher i said no i'm facilitating this group and and we just started talking and i said it looks like something's bothering you. he goes yeah 
because this guy bumped me in the lunch line. This is, so this is a live in, this is a residential program. And okay. They stay there for about seven months. And uh, he said, this guy bumped me in the breakfast line this morning. I'm trying to determine if I'm going to go stab him or not. And I said, okay, why would you want to stab him? He goes, well, I spent 25 years in prison. And uh, he said, and if somebody does that to you in prison, you've got to stab them or they're going to come at you. I said, but you're not in prison. He goes, you're right. He goes, you're right. He says, but I'm trying to get my mind thinking right. Because he was using even when he was in prison, because you can get the stuff. Right, right. And in, in this program, he, he wasn't. And he was like, I'm trying to get my mind right. You see, I met, I spent time with my grandkids this weekend. I want to be there for them. He said, my old way is, I had to go stab this dude. My way is, I'm not. And I said, but if you stay in this room, you won't for at least the next hour. He didn't. And he actually emerged as a group. In, the, in this, he emerged as a leader in this group. And a few weeks later, he, some new people were coming in and he's like, hey, Paul's an all right dude, which I took as a high compliment. He goes, he goes, he kept me from stabbing this other guy the other day. And I was like, I didn't hold him back, but you know, but, but, but it was, it was this, let's just sit with this for a while. Mm-hmm. And, and uh, it was, you know, it's it just, you're realizing it's, it's, it's a, it's a really a whole person change and it is heartbreaking at times. Um, it is, but uh, I do think it's it's rewarding. The other reason I, I do like this field is that it's always changing. Mm-hmm. You know, it's it's um, and you have to stay on top of it. So it's never really, it's it's never static. Uh, so that that's what's really cool that I like about it. So just what I fell into, I guess. Yeah. Any other takeaways you'd like to share? No, just that I really uh, encourage, really encourage uh, fellow clinicians out there that, um, you know, maybe this is something that you, you didn't get a lot of training with in mm-hmm. school. A lot of, a lot of schools, a lot of graduate, not all graduate programs, but, you know, there's still many counseling, psychology, medical, social work programs that really just leave this as an elective. And I know, like, for example, here in Virginia, you can obtain your licensed clinical license practice independently as a clinical social worker without having really any knowledge or treatment of substance use disorder. And I, some states are changing that in response to uh, the, uh, the, the, the addiction crisis that we're seeing right now and, and mandating that more and more. And I think that's good. Um, a, lot of, a lot of folks, though, and, and, I, and, and I'm, so I'm speaking to, you know, a specific group here, a lot of folks maybe fearful of going into this because it feels like an entirely new and different thing. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and again, I am promoting a book. I'm, I'm being honest about it, but I, I'm also, I wrote this absolutely um, with a, 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 a mindset of, I want to expand the number of people that are treating clients with substance use disorder. This is a place to start. Yeah. Is it going to make you an expert? No, uh, I don't consider myself an expert. Um, but I think it's a place to start. Hopefully it will demystify this process for you. Um, and, and really make it easier to have conversations with clients. It's, it is a workbook format. So there are tools within it that you can utilize. Makes it practical then. It actually makes it practical. And so my thing is that, you know, I I really wanted it to be the publisher, uh, the PESI, uh, media, media and publishing. I really wanted it to be, to be that way. And Mm -hmm. so, 
Um, there's a lot of material in there. There's some things that clinicians can work on themselves, practice. There are things that you can share with clients. Uh, there are activities you can do with clients. And so the idea is that it's uh, designed to really make it easier to begin um, broadening the, the, the way you're working with clients and, and things like that. My gosh, Paul, thank you. Thank you sure. for sharing your knowledge and insight on this topic. And I want to plug your book again. Sure. Clinician's Guide to it's, Substance Use Disorders. That's oh, right. It's ah, purple. Love it. It's purple. Practical tools for assessment, treatment, and recovery. So yes, we're gonna put can, a, we're gonna embed this in the social media okay. link too. Okay, and so you can find it at pesi.com, p-e-s-i.com. You can also find it on Amazon. Uh, so if you have Amazon Prime, you know you can get it with a free shipping. And I think Amazon the cover price is thirty-seven bucks. I think Amazon may drop it a few bucks here and there, but Amazon.com, uh, and uh, you can just you know, put clinicians' guide to substance use disorders. It's purple. I like purple. Um, my, my first book was uh, is called High Risk Clients. It's a little bit smaller. It's fiery red and orange. And so I wanted something cooler this time. So, But you purple. can check them out. Yes. No, thank you. And I'd love to have you back on to yeah. maybe do another aspect of talking about actual treatment and recovery mm -hmm. from substance use disorders. I think that would be a great sure. next episode with you. So, so, Sounds good. So thank you again, Paul. Thank you.